Welcome to Real Talk Arkansas. I'm your host, Cody Ford, Director of Outreach and Statewide Programs for the Arkansas Cinema Society. So today I'm road tripping. I'm back in my hometown of El Paredo, Arkansas, and hanging out with Tamara Corley Davis, one of our board members who first turned me on to this place that we're about to talk about. Tamara, how you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I, I'm good. Feeling a lot better now. I'm up and can stretch my back after a you know, solid six hours of driving. Um, so we're hanging out here at the South Arkansas Historical Preservation Society. And I have a special guest here who is one of the curators, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, Darren, if you want to introduce yourself to the audience. Sure. My name is Darren Riley, and I'm researcher and curator here at the uh, Society in El Dorado. So there, it's very interesting walking around this museum because I see, you know, I think right now we're sitting in front of like some what Civil War era types or I guess post-Civil War kind of, you know, things. And, and a lot of times you think, you know, in smaller town uh, museums, like you'll see this kind of stuff and it's cool to kind of peer back into the past. But you guys have something here that's really special that our audience, I think, would really enjoy. And Darren, you've been doing a lot of work with this. So if you tell us a little bit about what it is that, you'll have that so unique here at the Preservation Society. Well, here in El Dorado, we kind of have a, a little unknown treasure, uh, which is 90 years of Hollywood and entertainment history with the Michael G. Fitzgerald collection. Uh, Michael was actually uh, a long time, lifetime resident of El Dorado, and he uh, ended up uh, making connections in Hollywood that very few individuals actually make. Uh, especially for individuals that don't really work in the business, in the entertainment So these connections and everything, how was it he was able to make all of these over the years? It started out at uh, what we used to call pen pals. He became pen pals at a very young age with an actor named Gary Gray. Most of the people of older film would realize Gary Gray was Timmy from all the Lassie films until he went into television. Uh, Gary Gray also worked a lot with Ronald Reagan and uh, Night Into Night and a lot of the other uh, up-and-coming people at that time that you would know, but like Richard Whitmark, Robert Mitchum, uh, Charles and Heston. Um, Michael's connection with that was he started writing here, uh, and they started this friendship back and forth, even though Gary was older than Michael. Um, and Michael's interest was in getting to know uh, people that worked in the industry. Uh, and that connection actually opened up the doors for him to later on in life uh, take a two-year sabbatical from his regular job as being an accountant for Swaco in Louisiana um, and actually doing two years of research on Universal Studios, uh, which culminated into a book, Universal Studios, a pictology. And uh, it is a massive volume that goes all the way from the studio's beginning until their uh, film they completed in 1975 and the book was published in 76. Um, and then that actually, after that was released, that led him into a writing partnership with Boyd Majors of Western clippings and uh, a lot of um, Western uh, culture and Western film. Uh, and they actually co-wrote two books together on women uh, and the Western, uh, women's Western, and 
of women uh, in the West. Uh, and those are actually compilations also of interviews that we did with 65 actresses that all worked in the Western genre. Uh, and that's how they were treated uh, and what it was like at that time when basically movies and were just starting and then moving up into Western television and natural genre. So it's a really interesting, uh, not, um, I guess, for public uh, really open because so much of it was just shared between the individuals. So it's a very private collection of um, information about the, the entertainment system in this country. Uh, it was shared by the people that actually made the films and made, wrote the songs and produced the theater and produced the, everything. For, uh, so it's really quite crazy. We have over 3,000 just individual uh, letters and cards uh, from everyone and anyone that worked within the industry. That includes early back to Cecil B. DeMille, all the way up to working with Morgan Freeman and all the things. I mean, this is just, it covers the gamut. It's from, all, from the beginning bit. to the modern age, pretty yeah. much, which is really incredible. Yeah. And it's not only film, it is every aspect of entertainment. Uh, there are original recordings, original 78s, and original letters, and things to that effect. Uh, Michael was a friend of Bob Crosby. Well, no Bob Crosby now, they know his brother, Bing. Mm. Uh, but we have all the correspondence between Bob Crosby and him, even the music that Bob Crosby would send Michael as Christmas gifts. Bob was kind of the Frank Stallone of the Crosby. Kind family. of that way, yeah. He was the good musician without the good looks. Okay. So Bing had the good looks and was an okay quasi singer. His brother was better and a better band leader. So Bob stayed in music. Bing went to movies. I have uh, Sirius uh, XM radio, and there is this, like, uh, I think they call it 40s Junction, and it's all that old stuff. And, like, for some weird reason, when I'm driving through, like, I don't know, like the Delta or like, going up to Memphis or something, mm -hmm. I always have the urge to listen to 40s Junction because some of those towns, it's like you can kind of look at them and, like, oh, I bet that's what it looked like, you know, 85 years ago or right. something like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, th that that is really cool. And of course, I'm a huge Bing Crosby fan anyway, so I'm going to have to listen to more Bob stuff. I'll, I'll keep listen, my, listen Bob. Keep my ears surprised. Up. Okay. And they actually, their earlier recordings were them together yeah. because they were a brother team until they really kind of got separated through. Bob stayed on Broadway and in the touring of his band and everything, and Bing headed out to Hollywood. So. And didn't they have uh, some women who went on to be famous that sang for their band? Uh, yeah, quite a few that ended up going through between uh, Margaret Whiting, uh, Helen Forrest, uh, then for a bit, of course, Bing recorded a lot with the Andrews sisters. Uh, so that kind of most people would identify with his recordings of them, those guys. Um, but uh, Bob would go on and work with so many of the other singers that was good or uh, but most of his work was in the nightclub circuits. Yeah. Uh, of course, I mean, that seems to kind of be, if you've seen White Christmas, being sort of like the, the plot of it yeah, in some way. very much so. And White Christmas is really loosely based on the brothers. Okay. So it's, and you don't discover that unless you read stuff from these letters. You know, it's not all public knowledge. That you, have about that. You, you guys have the secrets here. We do. And they all come from the actual people that created the artwork. 
so yeah. it's from the directors, it's from the actresses and actors, from the screenwriters, from the producers. So we know it's not bunk when it's actually the truth. So, uh, it's yeah. coming through from actually being written by not a fan and not from fandom. I mean, they, he was friends with these individuals. They called him, he called them. It was a very personal relationship that he had worked over the many years with really the biggest names in Hollywood and entertainment. It's just really incredible. And yeah, it, it is pretty incredible. What little bit I've gotten to peek at in here. Now, Tamara, you were the one who first told me about this. Mm -hmm. So when did you first get to come see it? What, what was it that excited you about it? Well, just the fact that it's here and no one knew about it. And it's like they were just, they were, they were holding it close to them. And um, I'd seen where the, um, the Historical Society would do um, a movie night once a month with these classic films. And uh, it just, I never put two and two together that they had these original film reels that they were showing from the early ages of, of film. And then um, Steve did a, um, he came to a chef's table one night and talked about prohibition. And um, I think it was then, I think it was, he, he had mentioned something about this Fitzgerald collection during that time. And, um, and then I put two and two together and started talking to him and about ACS and that um, it seemed like the perfect type of partnership to get some some knowledge out about this collection and what is actually here and to try and get people to come see it because I would say maybe 80% of the people in El Dorado don't even know about it. And um, we've got to change that. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as a film producer, and then, of course, your son Clayton being a uh, writer-director, what were some of the more exciting parts for you? And, of course, and your husband just being a huge movie buff. I mean, I think y'all could just donate your house here one day. <laughs> you know, just, I mean, what if y'all got, like, 10,000 movies over there? Or something? Not quite there, but he's working on it. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's like going into, like, when we had Hastings up in Fayetteville. And it, uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. The, the collection mm -hmm. is, is immense, and yes. I think that's pretty cool. So what, what were y'all, you know, individually, what were y'all's favorite pieces that you got to see? Um, I like seeing all of the original movie posters because um, they're, they're works of art. Um, I saw a YouTube video here uh, last week or two, that was talking about um, movie posters and how they were hand-drawn, hand-painted, and now they're basically floating heads on a, on a sheet of paper. Um, there's no originality to them, and when you come and you see these posters, they're, they're more than just a poster, they're a work of art, and um, that's a lot of my background. Um, uh, I took a lot of art history in college, and um, and I really, really enjoy seeing that. And uh, I guess the first was at an ACS event when uh, Richard Linklater came, and he was talking about the poster that 
he produced for um, the Newton boys, and uh, and he brought some, and actually Clayton ended up with one signed by Linklater. Um, but the studio wanted the floating heads, basically, so that to to show that Matthew McConaughey and you know was in it um, and such. But his poster was it told a story, and that's what these do. And I just I I love that. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that style mm -hmm. too. There is a guy in Little Rock uh, named Matt Owen. Who uh, there for a while? He was doing uh, working with several directors, and when they would do like table reads out in LA of different films, he would design these minimalist posters, and he did some really cool stuff. I think he actually did the the poster for Antiquities, maybe. Mm -hmm. I think Matt did that, but anyway, so it's really cool. Yeah, I prefer seeing more of the art pieces mm -hmm. like that as opposed to just. Yeah, it's. I mean, like I know Star Wars sort of made it. You know, they really popularized the the floating head mm -hmm. thing more so, but. You know, even when you look at like a New Hope's poster, it's more art than like, you know, what the the sequels. But I mean, there's a lot of problems when we talk about the sequels. <laughs> the, the people do whole podcasts about that. We won't go into it. But yeah, so it is very cool to sit back and just see all of these old westerns and you know adventures and things. So Darren, I want, I want to turn back to you for just a minute here. So did you initially come on to work with this collection or were you just like a movie buff? Let's tell, tell me about no, that. I, uh, well, I've got a little bit of history in Hollywood myself for a while and working in the industry. Um, so when I relocated back to El Dorado here um, uh, through Jack Wilson, who was executive director at the time, he reached out to me and was like, hey, we have this collection. I know you know movies. I know you know you know, theater and music and stuff. He said, come here and look at it and say if we have anything, is this worth keeping? Is it, does it need to go in the trash? What needs to happen? So we went to a storage building and we started opening boxes. And I started uh, finding po the posters uh, uh, initially and going like, like, dude, these are not copies. These are not reproductions. These are the originals. You cannot buy these. These should not exist. Uh, and then going further in and going to over 900 reel-to-reel -reel films of the originals, most of them not being shown again, and since they were first shown in the theaters 80-plus uh, years ago. Um, and then the press books and the books and the letters and everything, and it was like, you've got something here. Uh, so I spent about six months going through all of the 100 boxes and writing everything down that I could outside of every scrap of uh, uh, fan newspaper clippings. And there are literally election cases full of those. Uh, so, but after that, we didn't know exactly where to go with it as a society. Uh, we couldn't figure out where it existed in our mission, uh, or if it did exist in our mission, uh, because El Dorado is known as the oil boom town, not the entertainment uh, but the more research I did and the more of what I read in Michael's uh, through everything that he had, El Dorado's been the entertainment town since entertainment began. They started showing motion pictures in tents when you hand to the game. Uh, and you had to switch out your projector boards because their arm would get so bad that the movies would slow down and people would get upset and throw the first popcorn going to, you know. Uh, and then it moved from there. It moved into 
wooden shacks and moved into, and finally it called for this area, 16 motion picture theaters in the town of El Dorado. Uh, and now we have two. Uh, but it we used do, to be one there for a while. Didn't it it used to be one, and then it so dropped out. I was growing up, there was two, and then I think, yeah, I think we've done yeah. one for a while, but yeah, glad there's a second. Yeah, and now we've got a second one, which is more current, and uh, of course the jewel, what is considered the jewel of South Arkansas, which is the Rialto, uh, and was the uh, premier theater for South Arkansas, Northern Louisiana, and East Texas, uh, since it began uh, in 1918, uh, when it started showing motion picture. Uh, so uh, it's always been here. Uh, and then music has always been here. And then theater has always been here. El Dorado has one of the oldest community theaters in the state of Arkansas, if not the oldest. Uh, and it's just, it's a continuum. Uh, when you look and find out that, you know, Betty Davis would come here to perform. Uh, Scott Joplin would perform in this I can Tina Turner perform in this town. Uh, Legend of Houdini performing at the reality. Exactly. Not that you're <laughs> but yeah. Right. Uh, but, and then even to where uh, some of our notable actors like Bill Ragsdale coming back and doing theater in the Rialto in his hometown. Uh, so it's always had this draw. It's just a part of our history that no one has bothered to tell. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you had to keep those wildcatters entertained back in the day. Sure or, or then they're going to you know, get drunk on rye and yeah. You know, who, who knows what kind of yeah. hell they'd raise. And so, they yeah, had get enough, them at the picture show. Get them at the picture show, and there was always a way to leave the picture show and go down into the tunnels to get to where you needed to go, if that was your way. Uh, a lot of the um, reputable men in town would actually do that and then escape to the speakeasies so that no one, their family didn't know what was going on. They were at the picture show, uh, kind of thing. Uh, but even though, uh, and then with Michael, when he would set up his base and finally made all his connections, and once he started the Jive and Jackson Jills in Studio City, um, it really brought people in. Uh, Rosemary Clooney had absolutely no problem parking her RV in front of his house on Harold Allen and staying for a month. She loved it. Donald O'Connor loved coming to El Dorado. Gary Gray liked coming to El Dorado. Clint Eastwood liked coming to El Dorado. You know, we talk about you know, Elvis being here, we talk about Johnny Cash being but you're like, whoa, hold on. And uh, did, did he, did he, I think I'd heard that he would come here and duck hunt. Yeah. Sometimes. I yeah. think that was something I'd heard. He loved hunting. Most of it was. Uh, Cash, uh, it was fishing. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, for Eastwood, it was duck hunting. Uh, and there's a lot of them that come uh, for the area. And it's always been kind of a sportsman paradise for that. Uh, but then there were so many other people that, it wasn't about that, uh, you know, it, uh, they came because uh, it was a nice place. It was kind of cosmopolitan for them, but small. No one knew them, no one bothered them. They could go and enjoy and have a restaurant, go to the theater, whichever, all of that. Ginger Rogers always said that she loved coming here because nobody bothered her. Donald O'Connor was the same, uh, you know, and Peggy Ryan, uh, and then a lot of these places, uh, Rosemary DeCamp, uh, Grace McDonald, all of these folks, Robert Page, uh, they love coming here and hanging out on their off time. Uh, and they'd hang out around Michael, um, or they'd bring their own uh, RVs or whatever, or 
you know, rent out a place and no one in town would know they're here. And it was just like a secret little enclave that they could have picked. But no one would know that unless we had this collection and all those letters of these people saying, love the time I've spent in your town. You know, can't wait to get back to El Dorado kind of thing. So currently, y'all have um, a corner here at, in the building that is reserved with you know, some of the posters and things like that. But I know that's just scratching the surface of it. So what are some other future plans that y'all have for the collection? Uh, actually, a uh, continuation of our Silver Screen series, which is where we, we show the platinum films, which we actually do restore here on site. Uh, and actually, uh, all of our restoration happens here uh, through it. Uh, but that way, we open it up, we discuss the panels, very much like uh, Good Times Picture Show used to on AETN. We kind of uh, mimic that style. Uh, so you get a little bit of information about the film, watch the films, and then we do a little back chat after. And it's really interesting because these films we have go from 1923 up until uh, about the mid 80s. Uh, kind of thing. Some of them do go into the 90s, but those are on VHS. Some of them are really terrible. Uh, but uh, And then with that, we take, of course, this into uh, education is a large part of our, our mission. And so I go into the classroom uh, and discuss a lot of that, which lets you open up to exactly where we are in America. This collection shows us who we were as a people through our entertainment. Uh, what were our ideals? What was our moral, moral at that time? Uh, all through these phases. And there's some of these films that we as a modern audience look at and go like, no, you can't get away with that. You can't, oh my gosh, you can't say that, you can't do that, you can't show that, you can't boom, boom. Uh, so it's it's really a learning thing. Of what, this was entertainment purposes. And if this was okay in the 30s and the 40s, uh, yeah, it's just really, it gives you a look at, I guess, the psychosis of America and what was going on as far as mm -hmm. culture at the time. And it's really the best way to do it. You can read it in a book all you want, but if you see it, actually, you know, kind of thing. And uh, a lot of the uh, young people that would come in, film students that come in to work with the collection with me, um, they've actually fallen in love with older films. They work in digital media now, uh, when they work with this collection, they're working in 16 millimeter. Most of them have never seen 16 millimeter in their life. Uh, some of your audience might even know what 16 millimeter is. Uh, but uh, so they're actually hands-on working with these films, restoring these films uh, and everything and watching these films. And they're realizing that screenplays were excellent for the majority. Uh, direction was sharp, keen. They're black and white, but the lighting is stunning, spectacular. It's just, it's a different genre that a lot of people, I think, would be um, interested in seeing again. I know for a lot of people, uh, a lot of our audience that do come to the silver screen, it's their first time to actually get to see these films again, but they might have seen in their teenage years or even younger child, uh, or they're just movies that they heard about but there's no opportunity to see that kind of thing. Most of what we have, you would never see on uh, Turner Classics. You won't see them on a movie, American Movie Classics. You 
won't see them on any of the classic stations because a lot of them, they're not out there. We have, there are so many we have that just, they're not available in any format on it today. Uh, unless you come here and watch them and show them for free. <laughs> Well, yeah, I would highly recommend that for people. Uh, so, Tamara, you're hanging out with us today. Do you have some questions you would like to ask, Darren? Um, or, or, I've heard, I've heard, or heard a some little points about, that we have I've heard a little about um, this famous yearly party. Jive and Jackson Jill's reunion. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, actually, that was a wild thing that Michael started for his friend, Peggy Ryan. Peggy Ryan was one of the original Jive and Jackson Jill's. Uh, for, if you don't know, the Jive and Jackson Jills was actually a young troupe of artists, singers, and dancers uh, that Universal put together in 1940. They did a national talent scout uh, and held competitions in every U.S. city and selected 22, 18 to 22 was their final. Uh, young people from all across the U.S. to come and be this young troupe of teenagers, a new term that Universal had just coined for their movies that, of that time frame. Because at that point, there was no such thing as a teenager. You went from graduation to college to get married to a family to you were an adult. Uh, and, and before that, you were working in the coal mines. Of yeah, like you were working and all of that. So, yeah. Um, but one of, uh, through one of his conversations they had, had with Peggy, she had bemoaned that they had all gone to Hollywood school, studio school, Paramount school. You didn't, it wasn't normal high school. You had your morning studies was your math, arithmetic, and all of that. And then in the afternoon, it was all uh, dance, voice, diction, walk, elocution, all of that. Um, and then you'd go straight into the studio and you'd start filming. Uh, so your days were very, very long. Uh, so they didn't get what normal kids would get. They didn't get proms. They didn't get any kind of celebration. So she said she'd always been kind of sad that they hadn't had it. So Michael said, well, you know, I can take care of that. And so he organized with uh, one of the other Jonathan Jackson Jill's son, Gary Bell, uh, he uh, put together this party. Uh, and at first, it was attended by just a handful. Uh, but as the years progressed, and there were over some of them weren't official, but there were over 23 official annuals uh, that went on. Um, it became the hottest ticket in town. Uh, and we have the guest books of who actually did come and have the invitation lists, uh, which are really kind of cool. Uh, but for those that started out really as the bit players and the studio folks and the dancers and singers and entertainers for Universal Studios poured over to MGM poured over to Paramount, poured over to 20th Century Fox, poured over to United Artists, and all of those. And so it became, every year, how do I get into this movie? Um, the Nicholas Brothers uh, attended this reunion every time that they could. In fact, we have actual video of one of the final reunions of Bayard Nicholas dancing with Peggy Ryan at 90 years of age still doing his tap dancing, just like he would have done with his brother. And everyone has seen Cliff, which is famous on YouTube, of the two men dancing down the stairs, doing death death, death leaps. Mm -hmm. That's the Nicholas Brothers. Uh, they were, um, they started in radio, believe it or not, and tap danced on the radio. 
Uh, so <laughs> entertainment. Uh, and we have a massive amount of radio uh, actually in uh, the collection through all of those radio stars. Um, but the, the reunion continued and continued until it was, it was really funny, even known Academy Award nominated screenwriters could not get in the door. And so this was happening in LA. <laughs> this My was happening in LA. Yeah. Yeah. He would take his vacation and he would head out there for a month and he would go and visit everybody and then he would host a reunion uh, and then he would come back and start planning it that he would return for the next year uh, kind of thing. Um, and Michael supplied everything as far as um, entertainment for the reunions. So when he flew out, he'd haul films, he'd haul the projector, he'd haul whatever he needed, plus anything and everything because they would have little swap meets. So all the stars and all these individuals would show up with all of their memorabilia and everything and just do a wonderful trade swap. No money traded hands. But they just swap memories. So it's like, oh, you told me you wanted such and such poster from this movie that I was in. Well, here it is. You know, and it was just stuff out of their collection. The wonderful thing about this collection with Michael is that majority of it is from those people. You can't buy it. You can't walk into a souvenir shop on Sunset Boulevard and buy this. It just it's not that. Uh, it's a little more specific. Uh, even down to Rosemary DeCamp's uh, Emmy nomination. Um, it's just kind of like, wow, okay. <laughs> um, but that's how it kind of went and uh, kept going and going. And unfortunately, the final reunion was in 2006. Uh, Michael came back from it uh, and actually had... Uh, developed a blister on his foot walking to LAX carrying all of his reels of 16 millimeter film and film projector and stuff. He didn't have too much because his car had been broken into. And so they robbed him of all the posters and everything he had taken. But they didn't take the movies, the projector, because they were too heavy. Um, but a, as a result of that, he ended up with complications health-wise and ended up passing just a few months after that final reunion that he had held uh, for there. Uh, but Michael, not only with the reunion, he was also extremely busy with the film circuit. Uh, he started out uh, mainly a lot of the Western film festivals in the area. Uh, he started Ashland Film Festival, the Memphis Film Festival of Western, uh, and then one in Williamsburg. Uh, so he jumped all over the place. He didn't always just concentrate or just in L.A., or just right here in Alfredo. Um, and then he would actually supply the films and all of that uh, for those film festivals. Uh, but you'd have all of those Western stars coming in, like Tom Hicks, Roy Rogers, when he was still alive, and all of those people, A11s, just everybody that was there. Uh, and they, they would have these wonderful uh, film festivals. Uh, and they would even incorporate radio into that because we actually we have a video or image of shot of them actually redoing radio scripts uh in fact one of the very early uh sherlock holmes radio script that had never been done since 1932 uh and we actually have video of uh all of these people like michael chapin and uh 
Eileen Riley and Tom Mix and all of these guys, Gabby Hayes, these folks doing this radio script uh, for the first time since it actually aired almost 90 years ago. Uh, so it's just really kind of those unique little things that no one else in the world has. Um, when Anthony Slide was evaluating for us, uh, and he's a film historian himself, and the starter of the uh, BBC Museum of Film, uh, he took a look at the collection, not personally, but all through paperwork and uh, talking. And he could not wrap his head around that someone from a town like El Dorado actually had something that was known. But then anyone in the United States who did not work in industry had this amount. It just boggled his mind. And this is a man who has curated the estates of Carl Reiner. Uh, he curated for, um, oh gracious, when she just passed, uh, trying to think. Oh, Jessica Tandy in Hong Kong. Uh, I mean, he's he's done big people. Uh, Charlton Heston, he did his estate. Charlton Heston didn't have anything like that. Uh, and I can understand that, because those stars would have been very specific to their works. Whereas his is so encompassing, it's crazy. We have letters from Liberace, <laughs> and from it's just it's nuts. Uh, from Stacy Keach, from Olivia de Havilland, from the very first movie star, uh, which was basically uh, not Mary Astor, Mary Pickford. Yeah, they were very dear friends, and she uh, normally would type her letters or her assistant would type her letters, but for every single letter that she ever wrote to Michael, she would always include handwritten portions of that letter and always sign it off with her customary Lillian Colin. <laughs> so, I mean, no one has a signature like that. Um, so it's just, it's really amazing. And it's, it's sad that Michael's not here to tell his own story because his story is fascinating. And if we could actually get the whole story, uh, would be really incredible. But that would be pulling in people like uh, Gwen Guilford or Chris Pine or Robert Pine or people that are that he worked with so much. Um, uh, Chris, um, oh goodness, uh, Costello. Uh, he was very close with her. Of course, her father, Lou Costello, was Abbott and Costello, famous comedian. Uh, but a lot of it was just really in incredible, even down to Anita Page, who was in the first Academy Award winning talkie. Uh, they were dear friends until the day she passed. In fact, she called him two days before she passed away. Uh, so it's just a, he was a unique, fascinating individual that everybody must have liked, or else these people would have spent no time on this person. Uh, and he could get someone as adamant as they were to every other interviewer or person getting into their world, he could work them into a way of trusting him to let them. Uh, a lot of starlets and stars and producers and directors have been walked away from Hollywood a lot through Red Scare or Horrible Treatment. Uh, and some of it gets really bad. Simone, Simone, a lot of these individuals who think that's just don't understand how they were treated on the set. Um, and a lot of it made them quit. 
but through persistence and through Michael, he could get through to them where they would talk to him. And it was just like, wow, how do you even do that? You know, so he's just really kind of one of those unique individuals. Sadly, he's gone. Our mission here is to keep his legacy going, tell the story. and to tell the story of these people because they created energy. Uh, and so if we lose their stories, we really lose the basis of entertainment in, in this country. So if people want to find out more about the collection and everything, you know, is there website, social media, any of that that people can check out and learn when they can come and see it first? Yeah, they can uh, actually on the web, just go ahead and hit uh, South Arkansas Historical Preservation Society. I think it's .com, soarthistory.com. Uh, and that'll give you actually information on it, uh, scheduling as far as when the exhibit's open and things like that. You can always schedule a, a tour for the archives, which lets you in. What we have presently in the gallery is less than 1% of the entire collection. Uh, so we've got about a 99.99% over in our archives. Uh, there's about 90,000 pieces to the collection. It takes you a minute to see it. Uh, and so actually for us to ever be able to display it, we would need a very large museum ourselves be able to pull more than just uh, there. So now we're basically focusing on genres and moving to genres about every six months. Well, uh, and we'll see. But even at that time, it's less than 1% of that collection out of that genre that we are actually able to represent and show to the public. It's that big. Yeah, it's incredible just what I've seen. So everybody check it out. Get down here to El Laredo, you will see this. Darren, Tamara, thank you all for being here today on Real Talk Arkansas. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Now, I'm going to do my outro too, but I'll cut this part. What's your last name? Rodney. Rodney, okay. And that's a wrap for this episode of Real Talk Arkansas. I'd like to thank Darren Riley and Tamara Portley Davis for stopping by and you know, showing us this incredible collection down here in El Laredo. So uh, we'll drop all the links in the show notes for you. And as always, I'm your host, Cody Ford. Thanks for listening. Real Talk Arkansas is a production of the Arkansas Cinema Society. Theme music by Amos Cochran. To learn more about ACS, visit our website, arkansascinemasociety.org, or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter.